So today, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. So if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, you can. So today, I was going to springboard into chapter 2, but I wanted to take some time to talk about what the church is before we start talking about problems in the church, which is basically what chapters 2 and 3 are. We're learning about the different churches, different types of churches, churches with different problems, different issues. But to get a big picture, to better understand what's going on there and how we can apply what we're going to learn, I thought it'd be good if we learned more about what the purpose of the church is. And that's the theme of the next two chapters, the next few weeks. So I'll just pray, then we'll read Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for these messages that speak to our hearts individually, as well as corporately, and as well as prophetically, and as well as to the local churches at the time. So I just pray that you'll help us to take what we can over the coming weeks from these letters to the churches, and even read them for ourselves, and really ask you to show us where we're at in our walk with you because these are really penetrating letters. Like your word says in Hebrews, divides between the bone and marrow, between soul and spirit. And we pray that you will reveal our hearts to us as we study the next few weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So just to revise the framework of Revelation, how it's all set out, we've got three main sections, which is the things which you have seen, which is chapter 1, and that's a vision of Jesus, and Jesus revealing himself to John. The things which are, that's the age or era that John's living in, and that's what we call the church age. And we're living in the church age now. We're coming to the end of the church age. And the third one is the things which will take place after this. After this is the Greek metatelta, and we pick that up in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1, metatelta, after these things. So, and that is basically the tribulation, the second coming, the thousand rule and reign, and then the great white throne judgment, and then eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. So let's just jump into verse 20. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So it says the mystery. Now in that culture, it means Something that was not known, but could only be understood by the initiated or the the clever people. Okay? Well, guess what? We are the initiated. We're born again. We've had the veil taken away from us. So we can understand the mystery of the church. The church is the mystery. And that's what it says in the New Testament as well. If you go through the Old Testament, you will not find a reference about the church. The church was a mystery. It wasn't revealed yet. So in the Bible, it means something that 
is a reality in the New Testament, but it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. So we've been through the seven stars and the angels and the lampstands, but we'll just quickly go through it. So Jesus basically is explaining or interpreting his own images. The stars in his hand represent the angels of the seven churches, and the lampstands represent the seven churches themselves. So each church has its own angel, and Jesus held these angels in his hand. Now, angel, angelos, is messenger. So it doesn't have to be an angel. It's Jesus holds the messengers in his hand. So it could be the pastors. And most commentators and that that I've read, they think that it's meaning the pastors. It's the pastors who are preaching the word and being a messenger to the churches. So why are they likened to stars? Why are the messengers or angels likened to stars? If you go back to Daniel 12, what does it say? It says, those who turn many to righteousness will shine as stars forever. So Daniel 12, those who turn many to righteousness will shine as stars forever. And it's really comforting to notice where the angels or messengers are. They're in the right hand of Jesus. So it's a place of safety and strength. Now, some of the churches we're going to look at, they've got some big problems. But guess what? Those pastors are still in God's hands. So I take an application for that. I take it as being a security for me because even when I'm failing and I'm messing up, not just as a pastor, but just personally, I'm in, as the gospel say, in the hands of Jesus and in the hands of the Father. I'm safe and secure. So I really like that, that idea of being secure. Now, why seven churches? Well, seven is always used of the completeness or perfection of something. So these seven churches are symbolic of all the churches throughout history. So what does the word church mean? Well, the Greek word is ekklesion, and it means simply the called out ones. We're called out. And I want to tell you a little story to help explain something. This happened many years ago. I don't remember the actual pastor's name, but there's this old missionary lady, you know, imagine her wearing a bun, you know, how missionaries used to do. And uh, she's sitting down with these young people in this church meeting, this Bible study. And she's really got a frown on her face and she's really annoyed. And she's watching these young people and the pastor's, you know, teaching the Bible study. And finally, she stands up and she says, these young people are desecrating the church by chewing gum. (gasps) The pastor replied, the churches are chewing the gum. The churches are chewing the gum. The young people are the church. The church is not a building. So there's three levels of meaning when we talk about the word church. It's not a building. I'm going to just take you to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the 
body of Christ, the church. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Now, baptized there means to be identified with. So a very broad understanding of this would be, well, I'm an Eagles supporter. How do you know? Well, I'm wearing an Eagles scarf or an Eagles jumper. I'm identifying myself with the club. Okay, We've been identified with Jesus, the church. We've been put into the body of the church. That's our identity as part of the body of Christ. That's who we are now that we're saved. So when we believed, the Holy Spirit baptized us into the body of Christ, identified us with the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit, first of all, came to live in us, but second, he made us a part of Christ. That happens at the same time. It's just a different ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when we're born again, the Holy Spirit lives inside and we're identified or made a part of the body of Christ, the church. So that's our new identity. Now, the second level of church is not just the individual, but also the local church. And so in the Bible, the church refers to local churches, like it says to different people, the church in your house. It's not talking about the whole church or an individual. It's talking about a group of believers who meet together on a regular basis. That's what the church in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 is primarily talking about. It's the local church and the pastors of those churches. And Jesus is among the churches, and each church is responsible to Jesus Christ. Each individual church is responsible to Jesus. Then, the third layer is like the universal church, representing all true born-again Christians. Okay, So, one day, there will be the ultimate ecumenical meeting, and it will happen at the rapture, and all the true believers will meet in the clouds with Jesus. So the summary of verse 20, every pastor is in the right hand of Jesus. It's a great blessing, but it's also a great responsibility. And the churches are referred to as lampstands because we are the light to the world. Now, seven churches, seven literal churches, they did exist at the time, but also they represent all churches. Now there's four applications, four things that God wants to teach us through each of the seven churches. So. Firstly, John was probably an overseer of these seven churches, the Church of Ephesus being the first one. So he would have had a specific message for each of those churches at the time. Then, those churches had problems and strengths that would be useful for churches down through history so we can learn, as our little church, about what they went through. We can learn from their mistakes and we can learn what the solution is. The third one, the third application, is the same problems and strengths can be applied to the individual. Like in the church of Ephesus, the loveless church, you've left your first love. Now that can happen to any one of us at any time. When we're waylaid by a wrong priority, and then we can drift away and become distant, and that can happen any time. So it goes through that and it shows us what to do if that happens to us. And the fourth application is that of church history. The order of the letters, again with the Church of Ephesus being first, represents the order of church history through the ages, through the last 2,000 years. And we'll find that the Bible is very accurate, as usual, in predicting the future. 
And it predicted very well the main stages of the church. Today, my main focus is to look at the purpose and function of the church. So we are a body of believers. We are a church. So I want to ask two big questions regarding the church, which will help us to apply what we will learn in the coming weeks. So what is the purpose of the church, and how do we fulfill that purpose? Again, what is the purpose of the church, and how do we fulfill that purpose? If we look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says about Jesus, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is in the middle of the church. He's here. But we meet Christians who say, well, I'm not in the church. (laughs) Well, that's too bad because Jesus is. (laughs) Yeah, but the churches around here have so many problems, they say. Well, so did these. But Jesus wasn't ashamed of them. He was with them. Just remember, if you ever do find a perfect church, don't go in. Because it won't be perfect anymore. So, our first question, what is the primary or most important purpose of the church of believers gathering together? Well, let's go to Isaiah 43 verse 7. It says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. So, the ultimate purpose of the church, like everything else in creation, and even for us personally, is to bring glory to God. God made us, God owns us, and we're created for a purpose, and that is to bring glory to Him. Now the question becomes, how does the church bring glory to God? In the life of a believer, we bring glory to God by bearing fruit, the fruit of love. Let's have a look at what Jesus said. And this is going to be a focus passage for today, actually. So kind of stepping out of Revelation. But I'm going to put it up here. It's John 17, 20 to 23, it's Jesus praying. He's already prayed for himself. He's prayed for the disciples. And now he starts praying for all those who will believe after them. So this is, he's praying for us. He's praying for the church. So let's read John 17, 20 to 23. It says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one. Notice the repetition of those words. May be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So, how does the church bring glory to God? By unity. We demonstrate spiritual unity. Now, people have questions about what unity is, what it looks like, how do we get there? Well, the easiest way to start to explain this is to explain what it's not. So, unity is not uniformity. Jesus did not pray for uniformity or institutional unity among believers. The unity he's talking about is where we love each other and we accept our differences. We have diversity. We have unity in diversity through a loving acceptance of each other's differences. 
So what's the difference between unity and uniformity? Well, a quote from David Guzik, he says, Uniformity seeks to unite wheat and tares. It can't be done. So in the parable, the wheat and the tares, the wheat is the true believers and the tares are the false believers. So uniformity, basically as you look around, ecumenicalism is uniting the wheat and the tares. It's getting everybody to say and believe the same thing. So uniformity seeks to unite the wheat and the tares. It can't be done. So unity of institutions or denominations does not ensure unity of the spirit. Now, I've heard this motto before. Let's be one in the one. You heard that? Yeah, let's be one in the one. So uniformity is a false unity based on compromise, fear and coercion. So I might say, oh, come on, how come your church isn't joining in? Response could be, because some of the churches involved preach a false gospel. Either their prosperity gospel or a works gospel. Think about what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. When people came into the church he was at, Antioch, and tried to get people to start keeping parts of the law in addition to simple faith in Jesus. Listen to what he said. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. This is the danger of ecumenicalism, of uniformity. The victim of uniformity is biblical truth and the gospel message. We must at all cost preserve the truth of the gospel message. And again, the ecumenical movement is all about compromise, about all being the same, about letting go of anything that might offend someone else in the group, regardless of it, it's true, and accepting the group norms, even if they are false. And what you end up with is a watered-down gospel and Christians with very weak convictions. If you've been looking at the news, what happens when a so-called Christian leader says, we're going to have a day of prayer. We invite all Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Jews and Christians to pray together. I mean, who are we praying to? It's crazy. This is where it's going. I think it's safe to say that we are well on the way to one world ecumenical religion where everybody believes everything but nothing at the same time. If that makes sense. <laughs> they all believe everything and nothing at the same time. They've got nothing. There's a title of a book, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. <laughs> Relativism. So the key to working with other Christians, just to make this a bit practical, is that they have the same gospel, the gospel of grace, and that we worship the same God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We recognize the deity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We must be in agreement on essential doctrines. So important questions to ask about the gospel are, when you're asking someone, how is a person saved? Is it by grace or is it by works? Is it by faith plus works? Some denominations or some people will say it's faith plus. You've got to do something. And that could be anything. The second question is, what is a person's motivation for being saved? Is it gratitude or is it greed? Are you coming to God to get something or are you coming to God because he's done something for you? 
And I'd recommend the documentary American Gospel Christ Alone. It does a great job of explaining the true gospel while at the same time exposing and explaining the various false gospels, namely the faith plus works gospel and the prosperity gospel. And I've watched it a few times and I'm always getting something new from it every time I watch it. It's probably one of the best things to watch. So again, that's American Gospel, Christ Alone. American Gospel, Christ Alone. Now, other differences in doctrines and preferences are okay. It's all right to disagree with each other. Like, for example, end time theology. Some people say, I don't believe in the lineal reign of Jesus Christ. Okay. I can still fellowship with that person. They still believe in the same gospel. Some people don't like the music. That's fine. I can get along with them. It's all about agreeing on the big things, majoring the majors and minoring on the minors. Learning to agree to disagree on those minor issues. So what is true unity? Well, true unity, as Ephesians 4.15 says, is based on truth and love. It says, speak the truth in love. So why do we need both truth and love? Well, someone said that love without truth is hypocrisy, while truth without love is brutality. So here's an example of love without truth. Someone who's got a monotone voice thinks they can sing and they want to sing on the worship team. And so they go up and ask someone, can I sing on the worship team? And that person says, you know what, your voice is so good, you should quit your job and try and get a job as a lead vocalist in a band. That person's going, really? And then someone says to that person who just spoke to this person who can't sing, what are you doing? Well, I didn't want to hurt their self-esteem. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. So, is that love? Of course not. Love without truth is nothing but lies and hypocrisy. Now, brutality. <laughs> I'll use a marital example. This is not true for us, by the way. <laughs> I just made this one up. I did want to get myself in trouble. Um, <clears throat> the wife has been home all day making her husband's favorite meal. It's her first wedding anniversary. And she's got everything in the oven and she's doing her very best. She's making his favorite meal. But the baby that's just been born has just vomited everywhere and, and she forgets the stuff's in the oven and it burns. But she's got nothing else to serve up so she serves this burnt dinner. And the husband comes home and he says, your food, your cooking sucks. This is inedible. You should get some cooking lessons. Now, truth without love becomes a weapon that destroys relationships and causes great discouragement. Now, that was obviously a made-up example, but you can probably think of some times when people have spoken the truth to you, yeah, I didn't do a very good job, but they've said it in a way which is really discouraging. And in many cases, love is the difference between a struggling person quitting or persevering. So you must speak the truth in love. So true unity accepts people the way they are and celebrates the natural diversity that God has put into the church. So what is this diversity? Well, we have different weaknesses. 
strengths, personalities, talents, spiritual gifts, and ministries or callings. Also, we're all at different points in our walk with God. Some are more mature, some are less mature, and that can change in different areas of our lives. Some might be more disciplined than Bible reading, but have problems in another area of their life, and someone else might have no problem in the other area of their life, but just struggle with reading the Bible, and so we're all different, we're all very different. But, somehow, God can pull us all together and use us despite all our differences. And that happens as we focus on Jesus. Now, I've got a quote here. Now, I've used this before, but I'm going to use it again. It says this, Such a powerful evangelist was George Whitefield that 30,000 people would regularly attend his open-air meetings. So anointed and eloquent was he, History records that many orators and actors would come just to watch him. Charles Wesley, a contemporary of Whitefield's, or Whitfield's, was also preaching to multitudes. Yet so diverse were the views of these two men on certain doctrines, they took out advertisements in the newspapers explaining why they believed what they did and why the other was amiss. People thought these men hated each other. Until one reporter asked Whitfield, Tell me, Mr. Whitfield, do you expect to see Charles Wesley in heaven? No, answered Whitfield. He's going to be so close to the throne, and I'm going to be so far back, I'll never see him. So that's how it should be. Here, these two very fruitful men, they had the same gospel and the same essential doctrines, but they disagreed on different things. They had different flavors in the ministry. They did things different ways. That's why they had different meetings in that, you know. But they had unity through love in their diversity. So I'm going to come back to our verses in John chapter 17. Because these tell us a lot about how we can experience this unity and what it should look like. So... In verse 21, it says that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So, God wants us to be one, to be unified. Why? So the world may believe. We demonstrate the evidence of God by the way we treat each other, basically. And the scripture here is John fifteen thirty four to 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So this fruit that brings glory to God is his life, his love working in us and flowing through us. So, back to John 17. In verse 21, it also says that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, what's the foundation of our unity? It gives us a clue here. The Father and the Son experience unity. What's it based on? Well, we have a similar foundation, and that is equality of person. The Father and Son are both God. Okay? We are all created beings and we are all sinners. We all 
are on the same ground, at the same level, when it comes to the cross. None of us are good enough. We're all failed. Someone has said, the cross creates a level playing field. No one's better than anybody else. We all have to come in the same way. We can't come into the kingdom any other way except by the grace of God. And then in verse 22, it says, The glory which you gave me, I have given them. So, God has given us his glory. This is a shared glory among us as believers. It's the glory of Christ in us, the Christ with us. Now, what's the secret here for unity? Well, a focus on Jesus in our presence will promote unity. So if we're all seeking Jesus, then there will be unity. In contrast, the moment we start looking at ourselves or anything else, there's going to be disunity and division and dissension. So you can be focused on a ministry, you can be focused on a person, you can be focused on whatever it might be, but if it's not Jesus, it's not going to bring unity. You think of the triangle example, where we've got God up the top and the husband and wife down the bottom, and the only way for the husband and wife to grow closer to each other is to grow closer to God. As they get closer to the top of the triangle, they're closer to each other. That's the same with the church. We grow closer to each other. We grow stronger in our love for our brothers and sisters as we all grow closer or stronger in our love for Jesus. Does that make sense? As we all grow to love Jesus more, we love each other more. And that's the way it works. That's what it means to be focused on Jesus, focused on your relationship with Jesus, first and foremost. And as you do that, you'll love him more, and naturally, you'll start to love each other. Now, what does it mean to share his glory? Well, when we share his glory, we share his character. The son reflected the glory of God. What did he do? What did he look like? Well, he was obedient. He was loving. He was humble. He was meek. He was willing to suffer and willing to sacrifice for others. That's the character of Jesus. And we share his glory when we share his character. So in verse 23, I in them and you in me. So again, this is not a unity of compromise or fear or coercion. Jesus wanted a unity of love and common identity. It's all about identity. Who am I? I'm in the body of Christ. I belong to Jesus. I'm focused on Jesus. He is my king. So not the ministry, not ourselves, and not the doctrine. It's first and foremost about relationship. Yes, it's important to have good doctrine, but it's not the primary thing. Relationship with Jesus is. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That's an awesome prayer that Jesus said there. This is the consummation or final result of the unity that he's given us. And I was just summarized it like this. You might as well learn to get along with your brothers and sisters down here because you're going to be spending eternity with them afterwards anyway. <laughs> so you can run, but you can't hide. And also in verse 23, Jesus' strong desire and prayer for his followers was that they be made perfect or complete 
or mature in their relationship with him. Now, we're going to look into that a bit more later. Do we share the same desire for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we working to help them, encourage them in their relationship with God? That's what we should be doing. That's what we're here together for. And that's basically how we grow up in unity. We encourage each other in our relationship with God. Here's a good verse for that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. That was written almost 2,000 years ago. How much nearer is it now? So, let's look at why believers should be part of a local church and what the benefits are and how we can encourage each other. So, think of each believer as a coal in a fire. If we are all in the fire together, we all glow red, and together lots of coals produce heat and light that bless many people. You know, you walk into a nice warm room, the fire's burning, and you go, oh, it's beautiful. We're a blessing to those around us, saved or unsaved. However, if one coal decides that he doesn't need to be with the other coals, that the other coals aren't good enough or are too troublesome and burdensome, then that one isolated coal, once it goes outside of the fire, will start to grow cold. It will stop glowing, it will grow cold, slowly but surely. So their love for the Lord will wane and die. And the only way for this person to start glowing again, to be hot again, to fan into flame their love for God, is to be in fellowship. That's what the church is all about. It's about fellowship amongst believers. We need the fellowship. You can go into the scriptures for that, but I won't now. So we are a member of one body and we need each other more than we know, than we realize. There's a warning in Proverbs against those who would seek to isolate themselves and think they can enjoy close fellowship with God while not being connected to a local body of believers. That's this one here. Proverbs 18 verse 1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. And in the New Living Version it says, Unfriendly people care only about themselves. They lash out at common sense. So people think, well, I don't want to get hurt. Those people are just going to pull me down. Here's my way of explaining, my way of analogy, why thinking you're protecting yourself or isolating yourself is actually harming yourself and is not good common sense. So I'm going to use marriage as an example because the church is a family. Marriage is a family, right? So my definition of marriage is God putting two selfish people together for the purpose of refining them and revealing to each other and themselves just how selfish they really are. So for me, without being in that situation where everything is shared, where nothing is your own, where everything you do affects the other person, where I'm with the other person all the time, where God commands me to put the other person first every time, before that happened, I really thought I was quite a nice guy, really quite unselfish and quite generous. My wife did a great deal of damage to my self-esteem. You say, (laughs) I esteemed myself my sinful nature quite highly because in the absence of marriage 
most of the time, all I had to consider was myself. There I was, by myself, thinking about myself, and agreeing with myself most of the time. I'd ask myself, do you want to read a book now? Walk the dog. Walk the dog. Yep, I agree with that. Good on you. Okay, let's go. I'd always be able to fit in with what I wanted to do. I was so good to myself. What a great person I was. So in regard to being selfish, being single is definitely the easy road. There's very little compromise that you have to make. Okay. So you can also think of marriage as God putting two uncut, very ugly and unattractive diamonds into a bag and then shaking them around. What happens? Well, they become smooth and polished. As they bump against each other, all the the rough edges, they get rubbed off and they become smooth and they become beautiful. And then when the light shines upon them, they reflect that light in all different directions and it's really pretty. So when God puts two people together in marriage, they rub each other up the wrong way. They get on each other's nerves, but all the while, their rough edges are being chipped away as their character is being transformed to be more and more Christ-like. And soon enough, the light of God's glory starts reflecting off these beautiful gems. Now you might say, well, that's fine for two people who get along most of the time, but my spouse isn't even saved. He never says sorry, and he isn't changing. It's just so hard. You complain. Now, I'm not saying that a person should tolerate physical abuse or any other unlawful behavior. So, a little caveat there. But there's lots of ways that someone can annoy you without being unlawful and hurting you. So, they might not be changing, but you should be changing. And the testimony of Christians who have endured these difficult, unloving marriages is that although those years were hard, they wouldn't have had it any other way. And you ask them, why wouldn't you do things differently if you had the chance to live your life over again? If you could choose a different husband who would really love you. And less conflict. Because, their reason is because, they were forced to turn to God to find the strength to keep on loving the other person. They were forced to depend on God to give them the humility and grace to forgive again. And again, their brokenness led to beauty, their sorrow led to joy, and in the end, their relationship with God was so much stronger than if they had been in an ideal marriage where there were very few conflicts. Their faith had been tried and tested, and as it says in James chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1, they now rejoice with inexpressible joy because of what happened to their faith. It's grown. So, I'm using marriage as an example. The church is made up of brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one family, one body. Now, we generally spend a fair bit of time with each other. And it's like God is putting a select number of uncut diamonds in a bag and calling it church. And then he starts shaking it up. (laughs) And we all start rubbing up against each other. That's pretty much how it is. It hurts and it's often uncomfortable. The result is the same as for marriage. As we learn who we really are by our selfish and sinful attitudes and reactions to others as they come up, we ask for God's help. We ask God to change us, to make us more like Him, and we learn to rely on Him more and more. So as a consequence, as a result, we learn to get along with others. We learn to truly love those people 
who we found unlovable at the start. See, God is changing us. We start to see past their flaws and quirky personalities and beliefs. Now remember, if you see someone else as quirky, guess what? They think you're quirky too, right? We start to love them for the person that God made them to be. It's a beautiful thing. So just like the husband and wife usually have to learn the hard way to get along, but end up stronger because of the struggle and conflict, so do church families, if they learn to trust in and depend upon God. So there will be arguments, hurt feelings and misunderstandings. So expect them because none of us are perfect. What do we read in John? God puts us there to mature us, to grow us, to make us complete. And this is the mechanism that he uses. He puts us together in a bag and he starts shaking us and we bump against each other and we become beautiful as all the rough edges get taken off. So what's important is that we take advantage of the opportunities. Now, it's not nice to see conflict as an opportunity, but it actually is. Take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us to learn to forgive others, to learn to love others, to learn to encourage others, to be truthful with others, to help others, to support others, to bear with each other's weaknesses, and to learn to disciple others. So in summary, as a church, we need each other. As much as it's sometimes hard to be around each other, we need each other. Now, if we are patient and persevere through the hard times, we will grow together both to love the Lord more and to love and appreciate each other more. And we will be really encouraged, and I know I'm encouraged, as I see people change before my very eyes. People are growing in their faith. People are growing in their love for the Lord, growing in their desire for the Word, growing in their desire for fellowship. And it's a beautiful thing to see people change. It's really worth the effort. However, if we quit, if we give up, if we don't have the big picture in mind, if we are attending with the wrong motive and we're not committed, then we will miss the opportunity to grow in our faith. We'll miss out on those beautiful friendships that we shared with the most unlikely people. I mean, look at us here today. We're all so different, you know, different walks of life, different ages. But God has got us all here and we're unified. So those who quit will have an easier life in some ways, but an emptier life. So, to sum everything up I've said today, I'd like to remind us of why God puts us believers together in local churches and doesn't just leave us to do our own thing. If Jesus thinks that a person in the body is worth loving, forgiving, and bearing with, then so must I. I need to love those whom Christ loves, which is everybody. If I don't give up on them, I will learn patience and grow my character, my faith, and my love. And the other person will be blessed and encouraged. It's a win-win situation. We need to demonstrate grace towards each other. If we don't, if we quit, if we leave, then our lives will be sadly lacking in growth and joy. So the main purpose, again, of the church is to bring glory to God as people's lives are changed to become more like Jesus. And that's why God puts forgiven sinners together in a local church a small version of the body of Christ, the universal church, to get a chance to put into practice what we learn from the Bible. I mean, we read in the Bible, you should be patient. Well, how am I going to learn to be patient if there's no annoying person around? How am I going to learn to forgive if there's no one around to hurt me? 
How am I going to learn to love unconditionally unless there is an ungrateful person in the church? So none of this is easy, but it's very necessary. Now the world says that if you're unhappy, then get out of there. Quit. Leave. Marriages split. Churches divide. And now there's this generation of church hoppers or church shoppers. You've probably heard that term before. Who select the church based on how well it suits them. What programs they have. Or, or and or, are my friends there? Am I going to get along with them? Now, if it doesn't suit them, or if there's a problem with someone, they just leave. There's no commitment because they were there for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation. Their motive for going there was for themselves. It was selfish. So my exhortation to you today is, God wants us to seek him, to ask for his direction, as to what church family we should belong to. It's not about us and how it makes us feel, or if my friends are there, or if there's a youth group, or a Sunday school, or a creche, or if they sing hymns or don't sing hymns. Rather, it's about where God wants me to be, so I can grow and so I can encourage others. God's got a specific body in mind for each Christian, where they will fit in perfectly and work as part of that body to bear fruit together. So this person will be committed to the local church body and will be willing to go through the tough process of reconciliation after an argument, of forgiving the person who let them down, of walking next to the brother who fell into sin, of serving even when not appreciated. Why? Because they're doing it for Christ. They're here because Christ wanted them to be here. That's got to be your motive for coming to church, for choosing a church. You're doing it because God said you need to be in that church. And you're not doing it for yourselves. You're not doing it for what you can get. So just to finish off, I'd like us to read this verse. It's Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. It says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. So that's it for the message, but what we're going to do now is just take communion together. So as we take communion, just be thinking that we are the body of Christ. And one of the verses I really love that we went through in the book of Revelation is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. It says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus has washed us from our sins in his own blood. So as we take communion, we're remembering that the only way into the kingdom, the only way to receive forgiveness, the only way to have restored relationship is because we have been washed from our sins in his blood. And it's because he loved us. That's it. It's very simple. 